You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast, probably the last Domecast of 2018, although who knows, uh, because the legislature uh, just won't leave for the year. Uh, I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Will Doran, Colin Campbell, and Lauren Horsch. We'll talk about the latest action at the legislature where voter ID law has passed, and we'll talk about the 9th District uh, where people continue to uh, release new details on the alleged voter fraud that took place, uh, election fraud that took place. Will, do you want to start us off with uh, the latest on the 9th District? Um, We heard this week uh, from McRae Dallas, who has been largely silent. He's the political operative in Bladen County, who uh, some have accused of collecting, harvesting absentee ballots. Uh, He said through a lawyer that he didn't break any laws, uh, but and that was about the first public comment he's really made. Um, But we did see new exhibits released by the State Elections Board um, yesterday, uh, what day is it today? Thursday, so yesterday, Wednesday, um, that may contradict some of uh, what he had to say. So um, what did we find out yesterday? Sure. Um, well, just to back it up a little bit, I mean, the big question that I think everyone probably has is, is there going to be a new election in this race? You know, uh, Democrat Dan McCready, Republican Mark Harris, race still hasn't been certified. Uh, Harris was the candidate who used Dallas's services, and we're still, the state's still doing an investigation. So Maybe we will, maybe we won't, Um, but yesterday the state released uh, almost 300 pages of documents from a 2016 investigation that they had done into this same character, McRae Dallas from down there, who is, you know, accused of running this absentee ballot harvesting scheme, which is illegal, uh, this year, and a lot of the evidence that they released on Wednesday showed that it appeared that he was doing the same thing in 2016 as well. Um, All of that information was given to federal prosecutors at the time, um, and obviously they have not done anything with that. So, you know, our our colleagues here at the NNO and uh, the Charlotte Observer and up in, you know, our D.C. Bureau are trying to kind of run that down and figure out, uh, you know, exactly what happened there? Did somebody drop the ball? Did they make the decision that this just wasn't worth going after? But what what you see in this evidence that they released does appear to be pretty damning on some accounts. You have people signing affidavits, you know, sworn testimony that, yeah, we took people's absentee ballots and gave them, you know, to other people uh, to be voted on, which, you know, that is fraud. That's against the law. You can't do that. Um, And we also saw there were a lot of texts uh, from uh, this one phone that's shared by two of McCray Dallas's workers that kind of just put everything out in the open that the investigators had. Um, You know, they're they're texting friends, asking for their social security numbers so that they can register to vote and get their ballots and fill them out. And you know, you see one text where he texts his friend and he says, hey, I got your ballot. Who do you want for president? Um, and that was actually a, a funny little moment of levity. I'll see if I can pull that text up. Uh, he, his friend says, I don't think it really makes a difference, but the name is redacted. He will be the one to finally start the zombie apocalypse, LOL. 
So, <laughs> you know, so whichever president uh, with a, a few characters right, in his it, name it, it, who might uh, uh, fit under that, uh, it was you about your a guesses. five, six, seven characters long male presidential candidate from 2016 that uh, his friend hoped would start the zombie apocalypse uh, that he voted for, and you know, I, I made this comment on Twitter, and I think it's probably worth repeating. You know, with with these allegations of election fraud, you don't it, if it did happen, which it looks like it might have, but we're not sure yet. No one's been charged. No one's been convicted. But if it does happen, it can't happen without voters being kind of apathetic about their votes. You know, you, you know, if people don't mind that strangers are coming and taking their ballots away from them without them being filled out, then this scheme can't work. You know, and in this case, you know, he he texts his friend, you know, who he wants to vote for for president, but he doesn't, you know, talk about any of the other races, or at least not in the text that we see see in this evidence. And, you know. Assuming his friend does choose his vote for president, then that also leaves all of the other races on that person's ballot open for someone like McCray Dallas or one of his employees to fill in with, you know, presumably, you know, the names of whatever candidates are paying Dallas for his services. So that's kind of the the crux of this investigation. And again, this is from 2016. Uh, we haven't seen similar texts from 2018, um, but, um, you know, Nothing happened to him in 2016, so uh, I I think you know the the concern among a lot of people is because he you know nothing really happened. The investigators kind of sniffed around but never did anything. He was kind of emboldened to go and do this. And I I talked to Dallas Woodhouse uh, last night, the Wednesday night, the chairman or yeah, the chairman of the North Carolina Republican executive Party. director. Executive director. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> always mix that up. He's <laughs> often on TV with the chairman of the Democratic Party, so it's kind of confusing <laughs> that they're not exactly the same job. Right. Right. Sorry, Dallas. Um, but he, he made that same point. You know, he said he, he was kind of criticizing the, the State Board of Elections, saying, you know, they voted, we, we submitted some, you know, complaints about, you know, potential, uh, you know, ballot harvesting issues that actually that they were accusing Democrats of doing a very similar thing in 2016, and the State Board dismissed it, and, you know, clearly he also didn't do anything with this evidence they found against McCray Dallas back then. Um, and he said that kind of, you know, it, it emboldens bad actors, you know, if there are bad actors, it would embolden them and, you know, kind of harms public trust in the system. So uh, he and the Republican uh, Republicans in the legislature are calling basically for the State Board of Elections to lose its power over this investigation and for Governor Cooper to create a new bipartisan board that would take over this investigation. Um, uh, Cooper's people, when I talked to them last week when that idea was first floated, kind of didn't really commit one way or the other, dodged the question a little bit, just said, you know, you know, they they believe in fair, impartial investigations. And it is worth noting that the current Board of Elections is also bipartisan. Um, it has, you know, it, it doesn't have a majority of either party, although that will soon change due to some court rulings and some new bills that one of them, Cooper, has vetoed, but that veto is probably going to get overridden. So there's a whole lot up in the air is basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> And we now have a uh, hearing set by the State Board of Elections uh, about what happened in 2018, um, gathering evidence. It sounds like it's going to be kind of a uh, trial-like hearing um, where they're going to interview witnesses. Um, what, do we, what else do we know about uh, what's going to happen in January? Yeah, um, er early January, we're going to get this hearing, um, and at the same time, like I was just mentioning, the the whole Board of Elections might kind of be changing its setup because the, the current version, which the legislature created 
think earlier this year was recently ruled unconstitutional. They had created that to replace a different version of the board that they had also created, which was also ruled unconstitutional. Um, and so now we're basically going back to the old version of the board that existed for, you know, for most of North Carolina history, or at least recent history. Um, and so that's all going to be changing over at some point. Um, and then you also have, it's not even just the state board of elections that can call for a new election. You can also get Congress calling for a new election. And obviously, uh, in this case, it would be the House of Representatives because it's a House race. And starting in January, the House is going to switch from a Republican majority to a Democratic majority in D.C. So they could also call for a new election because, you know, originally it was the, the Republican who won. And if they're concerned that, you know, he kind of squeaked by winning by fewer than 1,000 votes, potentially with the assistance of some, uh, you know, potential fraud, I, you know, that it stands to reason that they would not want to seat him. So we could also have kind of a, a jockeying of positions between the state versus Congress on who's going to call for the election and what type of election, what sort of format they're going to ask for. Uh, one thing it looks like we won't see in that election is uh, voter ID being required. Um, that's the latest uh, bill passed by the legislature, um, but not yet signed into law by Governor Cooper, I believe. Um, it's one of several things that's still outstanding at the legislature and is going to push uh, legislators into a rare post-Christmas session. Um, legislators had uh, asked Cooper to uh, asked Governor Cooper to go ahead and veto or sign everything that was still on his docket um, before uh, Christmas this week so that uh, they wouldn't have to come back afterward. But he, as of this taping, has not yet uh, signed everything or vetoed any, everything. So um, they are going to have to come back. So, um, Lauren, what, uh, what are you expecting in a post-Christmas session? Well, we're expecting one, maybe two uh, veto overrides. We do have the elections board bill that is currently outstanding. He did announce earlier this week that he was going to veto it, but we don't know when he's going to veto it. And again, he announced that on Tuesday, I think that was. And uh, he has until Saturday at 11.59 p.m. to actually veto that bill. And in, the, in his press conference, he chastised the General Assembly. He had, he had um, problems with one. A section of the bill, Section 4, which dealt with campaign finance investigations. Um, and he told them, take this section out and I will sign this and I will sign the new bill. So he basically told them, no, let's refile this bill, take out that section, send it back to me. We're good. They're not going to do that. We've heard from legislative leaders. David Lewis has been very vocal and outspoken. They're not going to remove that provision. It's going to stay there. And they will override his veto because until January 1st, 2019, they still have a Republican supermajority and they can't override his vetoes pretty easily. Um, but Cooper told him, you know, I'm going to veto it, but I don't know when. He wants them to, in his exact words, he wants them to think about it. And so we're, it was a little bit like, oh, I want you to think about your actions before I ground you. But his Yeah, and they were not thrilled by that. The statements from the legislative leaders after that press conference were very strong. They brought up uh, concerns that Cooper wants uh, partisan control of the elections board. They brought up his uh, former appointed uh, chairman of the elections board, Andy Penry, who got in hot water for anti-Trump Twitter posts uh, and has since resigned. Uh, so they were none too thrilled. Um, at, at his approach, and I also saw some concerns from Republicans who pointed out that uh, in this state, the governor doesn't get a line item veto. You either can veto the entire bill, or you can sign it, or you can let it become law without your signature, but you don't get to say, well, I like section one, but not section two and three. 
Yeah, and the the statements were just kind of, I wouldn't say odd, but they were very mocking of him in a way because they called him the Grinch. They, you know, they said, you know, Cooper's being a Grinch. He's going to make everyone come back after Christmas uh, to deal with these vetoes. And we're going to have members of the General Assembly come to session on Sunday, which is not something we usually see. And it's just going to be a skeleton session. So that means there's only going to be, you know, one or two people there. But that also means we have to bring in the clerk staff, other nonpartisan staff. So we're going to see people in the General Assembly right before Christmas. And Republican legislative leaders did not take too well to that. They, in fact, someone on someone's staff, I don't know who, I wish I did. If you did it, please call me, uh, put up a Christmas tree. And next to the Christmas tree, they photoshopped Cooper's head onto the Grinch. So it literally is Cooper as the Grinch stealing Christmas. Is there an advantage to the governor waiting uh, to sign these bills or veto them other than just hoping that they might change their mind, which seems unlikely? There's, in my mind, he thinks he might be able to run out the clock. Legislators might not want to come back after Christmas. They might not have the numbers uh, to actually take care of a veto. They need three-fifths of uh, those present and voting uh, to override a veto, so he's hoping they might not be able to get a full quorum there. Uh, but really, I mean, when you've got a Republican supermajority, it's just symbolic at this point to veto it. So. And what the party objects to is uh, would keep campaign finance investigations secret, uh, at least to uh, to some extent. Right. The um, right now we can find out whether um, a particular candidate is being investigated. And would that not be possible under this if this passes? Um, I haven't read a lot into that provision, but there was a uh, member of the North Carolina press corps that actually asked about this uh, or asked uh, Senator Berger about this because uh, recently we've seen Senator Ralph Hayes under investigation. There's been a whole kerfuffle about, you know, his mom has cancer, but she was the treasurer of his campaign committee. So does she have to come in even though she has chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they asked, you know, is this kind of because of Ralph Hayes? And he essentially said, yes, this is, you know, we saw him, you know, get drugged through the media and it was all on page one and now it's on page six and all sorts of stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, the current process, um, if you're investigated for campaign finance complaint, the original complaint that someone files against you, and it could be just anybody who says, hey, I looked through this guy's form and it looks like he didn't disclose X, Y or Z, uh, that becomes public. Then the State Board of Elections investigative staff looks into it. That usually can take months, if not, you know, over a year. Uh, and then once their investigation is complete, they come back and essentially have a public uh, hearing presenting their findings. Um, the uh, candidate and their staff who is affected by it uh, can testify and dispute the findings. Um, and then the board typically would vote uh, either on a civil penalty, which I think was what happened with uh, Senator Heiss, um, or in the case of uh, Representative Rodney Moore, who also was under investigation, they can take their findings and uh, vote to send it to a prosecutor for further investigation and potential criminal charges. Um, and I think the way this would change, no one's entirely sure exactly how the process would change. I think the state board staff is still looking into it, but there is certainly the potential um, that that hearing process could no longer be a public thing. And you might then not find out, uh, the public might not find out about a campaign finance violation until it hits the stage uh, of either a fine or someone gets uh, criminal charges against them. Uh, and then the, the larger bill that that's part of also would change the election board, um, which we'll talk a little bit about, um, and uh, would also 
has an interesting provision that would require an entire, and you mentioned this too, Will, that would require an entirely new election in the ninth district, including um, a new primary. Um, anything else in either that bill or what else is uh, sitting around that's of interest that we'll be watching the, uh, as they come back? The only other bill still currently on Governor Cooper's desk is the technical corrections bill, which is basically used to correct any mistakes that were in the budget bill or any you know funding changes that need to be used. But in most recent years, it's become what some people call a Christmas tree. They basically just throw presents for lawmakers in there. They light it up. Yeah. Usually not passed at Christmas, though. Yes. Yes, yeah. it's very festive yeah. this yeah. year. Yeah. It's very, very fun for Seasonally us. Seasonally appropriate <laughs> uh, bill. Yes. Um, so there's, there's some provisions in there that some Democrats are unhappy about. There's uh, something about charter school employees getting on the state yeah, it relates plan. to the town-operated charter schools uh, that were approved for Mecklenburg County, um, potentially allow, changing their retirement benefits um, in a way that's advantageous to them. That's something that's very strongly opposed by the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system. Uh, they've been urging Cooper to veto on the basis of that. There's an environmental provision dealing with uh, development around river buffers um, that some Democrats are opposed to. Uh, but then there's other stuff in there that uh, we would expect Cooper to like, uh, most notably. Um, a provision that would allow an outdoor hockey game to happen in Carter-Finley Arena. And for religious Domecast listeners, you might know, Cooper's a pretty big hockey fan. He often shows up to uh, Kane's games, you know, whenever he gets the chance. And he's, you know, of the tweets that I know that he wrote, they are definitely about the hurricanes. You can tell when he's actually tweeting. His dad tweets about the hurricane or hurricanes. Pretty great. Uh, so, so there's been talk about, you know, maybe he won't veto it because of this provision. It'll be good for uh, the Hurricanes and the NHL to have that game here. And I'm not exactly sure what game it would be. I'm not up on hockey. I'm sorry, my Minnesota heritage. It's what it is. Um, but it would be a winter game outside in Carter-Finley. So. Lauren's Minnesota heritage comes up a striking amount in I this I just podcast. like to remind yeah. everyone that I'm a darn Yankee. Yeah. Not um, a scalawag like me, as I learned from an Irate reader earlier this week. So uh, what they did this week was pass uh, voter ID. And, of course, they'd already passed voter ID, but um, Governor Cooper uh, vetoed the bill and uh, the legislature came back this week to override. So now there is uh, a bill implementing the um, constitutional amendment that was passed last November, and we will have voter ID um, barring some kind of court action, which is very possible because there are already yeah. lawsuits. Yeah, I was going to say that's notable. Yeah. I want to know if someone was sitting down at the courtroom waiting for someone to yes. tweet saying the veto has been overridden because it was almost immediately that lawsuit Minutes. from Southern Coalition of Social Justice, right? right. Yeah, that. Yeah. They've got this down to a science now, uh, yeah. suing over pending legislation. Yes, and the NAACP also was suing, although I haven't heard whether that's the same lawsuit. They're, they're making an announcement the... later today, so after this podcast will be recorded, we might have another lawsuit. And during this debate, uh, it got pretty feisty. That's a nice way to say it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of back and forth um, about you know, historic disenfranchisement of voters of color, specifically black voters. Um, and it was a lot of back and forth between the Republicans saying, well, you know, historically the Democrats were the party of racists. They're the one who wrote the literacy test in the Constitution. They did this, they did that. And then the Democrats would come out, come back and counter, well, yes, that is our history, but you have to remember that those people left the party and guess what party they're in now? The Republican Party. And when there's all these allegations of racism or that they're passing this bill 
based on racism. It gets really heated. We saw some lawmakers like physically shaking when they were speaking into their microphone because you can see their microphone shake. Uh, there were you know heated comments. One lawmaker responded back to another one saying that they asked a stupid question, so they're going to get a stupid answer back. Uh, it was a tense couple of moments. and yeah, the speaker reminded them of the decorum requirements of the House chamber. Which is not something we always get. We don't always get reminders of decorum from lawmakers. Usually it's people in the gallery who are making noise, clapping. Uh, and we did little, have some of that. Yeah, there was a little of that from like four or five protesters who showed up to the uh, House debate and uh, were uh, chastised initially for snapping their fingers in approval when uh, someone was speaking that they liked. Um, and when they were told not to do that, they tried to raise their arms in the air uh, to show approval. And that apparently was not kosher either. Mm -hmm. hmm. So it was just very, we were expecting a 30, 30 some minute session and it turned into over an hour at the 55 minute mark. I remember this because I distinctly looked at my audio recorder at the 55 minute mark. Uh, Representative John Bell, who's the majority leader in the House, um, called the question, called the previous question. So that meant that they had to do a procedural move to vote to go back to only voting on the um, on the veto override. And so that ended debate and they got to finally vote because it was getting heated and you could tell there were lawmakers who were uncomfortable and didn't think that this was a discussion they should be having in relation to voter ID. Um, so it was, there were some fireworks. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, even this few days out, out from Christmas, there was not a whole lot of Christmas spirit, despite the one lawmaker who was essentially dressed as a Christmas tree. But Yes, thanks, Representative Howard Hunter. Yeah, there, there are pictures of his epic uh, Christmas uh, suit and tie on uh, Twitter, if you look for him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's take a quick break, unless we have anything else, and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. For what purpose does the gentleman from Orange, Representative Meyer, rise? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'd like to speak to the motion. The gentleman has forward to debate the motion. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's good to hear all the goodwill in the chamber today. Holy cow. Uh, I feel like I'm in a Dickens novel. It's amazing. Um... Look. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? Welcome back. Now it's time for headliner of the week, where we decide the most important person in this week's news. Will Doran, who's your headliner? Well, you know, we've been paying so much attention to southeastern North Carolina, but I think I want to move the attention up to D.C. Uh, with Representative uh, Mark Meadows of Asheville, the leader of the far-right Freedom Caucus in the House. Uh, he has been leading the push uh, for a government shutdown. Uh, there, he's actually, he and some other uh, House Republicans are meeting with President Trump uh, today, Thursday, uh, to talk about uh, basically what to do. They want Trump to, uh, you know, basically refuse to keep the government funded unless, uh, you know, Congress agrees to fund a border wall at the cost of billions of dollars. Um, obviously, uh, you know, they, they think that that's something that would really get the base riled up um, and would really disappoint the base of the party if uh, Trump does not do this. Um, but, you know, there's obviously lots of political considerations to be making. Uh, but, you know, uh, Meadows and the Freedom Caucus are kind of all in on the base there. They've been pushing him. Uh, to shut down the government. So we'll see how successful he's going to be. Uh, 
and he might be successful. It was, you know, it was reported uh, by me and others that he was in the running for uh, Trump's chief of staff and uh, didn't ultimately get it, uh, but essentially because Trump wanted to keep him in Congress where he could be, you know, putting pressure like he's doing today. Um, so Trump, you know, Trump likes him. They're friends. He's one of Trump's biggest uh, boosters in Congress. So we'll see if he's got the, the presidency or enough to, to basically get the government shut down over the wall. Okay. Representative Mark Meadows in the hat for headliner of the week and the Freedom and the Freedom Caucus, or just Mark Meadows? I think it's just, just Marky Mark Meadows. Mark. Okay. And Lauren Horsch, <laughs> who's your headliner of the week? Uh, so mine's kind of related to Mark Meadows in a way, I guess, because uh, it's about something in Asheville that also relates to something that may or may not be happening in the General Assembly sometime in the future. Um, Asheville ABC, the Asheville ABC Commission is preparing to handle uh, legalized marijuana in, like, it's not even close to happening in North Carolina right now. <laughs> um, but, I mean, they're, they're jumping the shark a little, but they want to be prepared for when it eventually does happen. And tying it into the General Assembly, uh, Representative Kelly Alexander, a Democrat from Mecklenburg County, has established the Cannabis Caucus. Now, it's not an officially recognized caucus in the General Assembly, but he's working on it. Um, and if you know anything about uh, Representative Alexander, he does frequently um, introduce legislation um, concerning marijuana, whether it's legalization or, um, you know, focusing on penalties or decreasing penalties. Um, so he, it's just kind of interesting to see the movement, you know, for the legalization of marijuana in the state. It might take a while. I mean, I don't know. I can't read the tea leaves there or the pot leaves there, whatever. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's just it's just interesting to see how one part of the state is gearing up for that, you know, or they're blazing the trail. <laughs> no, that's enough. <laughs> Sorry, in my, in it, my former it, life in Washington covering the pot industry, I just was uh, got my fill of all these Sorry, uh, pot puns. Andy's, uh, Andy's no more, not here to no make the puns. puns. Andy's yeah. not here to make the puns. No more I have pot puns. Um, no, but it's, it's just interesting to see how one area of the state is potentially preparing for such a move while the lawmakers and the policy setters are still trying to figure out what is actually going on because um, – Representative Alexander actually held an like an organizational meeting and no one showed up except for himself. So did he bring brownies? <laughs> so who was elected chairman? Kelly Alexander. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not officially a caucus yet, but they're working on it. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess cannabis is the headliner of the week for me. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right, cannabis in the hat for headliner of the week. Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? I'm going with uh, Senator Bill Rabin, the Senator, Senate Rules Chairman, um, who's in the news in the last week or so, sort of tangentially connected to the whole NC9 mess down in that area. Uh, Rabin uh, is, is based out of Brunswick County, but his district actually includes all of Bladen County. Um, and uh, turns out in his campaign finance reports from 2014, uh, he did have um, McCray Dallas's um, political uh, company uh, called Politico Management Services uh, on the payroll for his campaign, uh, doing some uh, work uh, related to uh, getting out the vote. Um, 
But uh, Rabin is not talking about this. Uh, he was uh, confronted by a TV reporter from uh, WECT in Wilmington last week, uh, went on camera. Um, once he found out that's what she was asking about, he walked off camera and said he was not going to answer questions about it. It's uh, such a good video. Please go find it on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quality. It you know, makes make some good faces. Uh, we also followed up with an email uh, to his office and also to the uh, Senate Republican caucus that uh, handles some of the campaign stuff for uh, the Senate Republicans did not hear anything back on that. So uh, for uh, getting sort of connected to some of uh, what we're hearing about um, in the 9th Congressional District and uh, some of these folks uh, being accused of different things related to absentee ballots, but uh, refusing to talk about it, I'm picking uh, Senate Rules Chairman uh, Bill Rabin. Okay. Senator Bill Rabin in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, so we have Bill Rabin, Representative Mark Meadows, and uh, cannabis, marijuana. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Representative Meadows uh, uh, because we're all watching to see what happens uh, this weekend and whether the federal government, uh, or at least a fraction of the federal government, shuts down. Uh, and uh, I see the latest uh, news on it uh, from Trump is uh, he's the president is tweeting. This is Thursday morning, I guess. When I begrudgingly signed the omnibus bill earlier this year, I was promised the wall and border security by leadership would be done by end of year. Now, it didn't happen. We foolishly fight for border securities for other countries, but not for our beloved USA. Not good. So that sounds like maybe he's uh, warming to this position, but um, could be different tomorrow. Um, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. And uh, in the meantime, uh, Mark Meadows is our headliner of the week, and Will is our winner this week. Uh, so for Will Doran, Lauren Horsch, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, catch us next week on Domecast. Uh, have a great holidays, and happy 2019. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.